hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife. Uh, here we are for the second episode of Attack of the Cybermen. I am still here with my very good friend Jason. Say hello, Jason. Hello, Jason. Oh, uh, yeah, see, everyone's done that at least once. Um, okay. <laughs> are you ready to go with episode two? I am ready to go with episode two, or as we say here on the screen, part two. Part, is it part two? Uh, it is part two. Yeah, I think it is part two. Yeah, okay. So, I'll count us in in five, four, three, two, let's go. The adrenaline rush that I get from these opening credits, if I you bet. could bottle that adrenaline rush, you could power the grid of a small American city for three years. It taps into something truly nostalgic, doesn't it? Your first sort of title music of Doctor Who. I have shown my kid the compilations of every title sequence from 63 up to 2018 on YouTube. And I always tell her, this is my favorite, the uh, Peter Howell arrangement of the theme. And maybe it's because that's where I started watching the show and I became an addict watching these opening titles. So the uh, opening titles for me are the drug. Do you know my first ever story live was Battlefield? Um, so it's the McCoy theme tune for me. See, you became a fan with Battlefield. My first episode was part one of Time Flight. So you and I both have atypical entrees into the yeah. series. I know. I, I started watching just as it came off the air. So I'm truly <laughs> a, like a Wilderness Years fan. And here's our overly nasty reprise. I like that shot deep into the TARDIS corridors. I was just going to say that to you. How funny. The perspective shot. I never shot. noticed that before. I just yeah. noticed that for the first time after 35 years. Oh gosh, Perry's for the chop. And that's the end of Perry and the roll. No, no, they saved oh. for life. Another season and a half of Perry. They always pause just long enough, don't they, for the doctor to say no. You don't get that with the new series, the cliffhanger acting. No. Well, there is one. What about um, Rise of the Cybermen? That's like David Tennant, isn't it? Saying, you know... Yes, that's a nice throwback. I can't remember what he says now. Uh, and here is another one of Eric Sayward's patented single-scene subplots, the TARDIS self-destruct feature. Does that feature again? I can't remember. I don't think it does. And if anybody would know, it would be you and me. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that dark side, man. I bet you can buy that. I bet there's a toy of that somewhere. But it doesn't do anything. It literally just stands in the background as if to say, I'm merchandise. Mm. Maybe. But it doesn't actually have any plot utility. That's a very new series, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Are we allowed to say new series anymore? It's like 15 years. Oh, it's always going to be the new series for me. Yeah. Because you have to run 26 years to be a classic series. So there is clearly a filter over this footage, isn't there, in the quarry? Yes, I don't know if that missed. I think the answer is on the DVD production notes. I don't know if that missed is on location or if it was added in later in post production. I want to say it was added in in post production. But you look at the location photographs, that was like red sand, like bright red. So they're using some kind of uh, grainy filter here to bleed the color out. Huh. Oh, as see now that's... As I am, I've never actually watched the photo galleries on the DVD. 
Oh man, I'm taking your fan stripes right now. <laughs> I just lost my fandom card. Did you uh, did you ever watch the TARDIS cams that they did? I never understood. Those were trippy, <laughs> but I never quite understood what those were about. <laughs> and then they disappeared uh, early on in the run. Mm. Oh, so here we go for the, the, the most egregious info dump you're ever going to hear. Ian Levine never had more fun in his life than giving <laughs> Eric Sayward the notes for this particular exchange. Okay, so you got to mention the 10th planet, the invasion, you got to mention. Don't worry about telling a story. Just put in one continuity reference after another. Your fans will like it. And, you know, do you think that's where they went wrong here? That they just weren't appealing to the mass audience? They weren't just appealing to the fans? Well... The problem is I became a fan in season 20, and it was the references back to past stories that got me interested. Mm -hmm. Like in Resurrection of the Daleks, when the Doctor mentions once before having had the opportunity to kill Davros. I'm like, wait a minute, I want to see that story. So for me, those continuity references were sort of a gateway. I suppose it, twice, wasn't it? Genesis and uh, Destiny. I guess you're right. I think Genesis is what he was referring to, because that was where he... Uh, yeah. Had his finger on Davros's um, self-destruct switch. These scenes, honestly, but he's still there doing that a sort of slow zoom on a static mask. But he's kind of doing a jerky robot, you know, like a. Uh... Oh, it's not good. You're right. Every roundel has uh, circuitry behind it. And it's very weird to have like a siege in the TARDIS like this. Li he's literally trying to sabotage his own ship. Telos, okay, so there's two. Now, Brian Glover's plot utility is over, but he's still finding a way to make himself interesting in the scene. Yeah. In a minute, he like he cuts through all the continuity with a line where he goes, 1986, that's almost now. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. So he's become the audience identification for you. You are now rooting for Griffiths. You want him to succeed. Later on, he gets offered a, a few million dollars. So he is the guy now. We are watching this because we are Griffiths fans, and surely he will get a happy ending, a second chance. But isn't the audience identification figure supposed to be the companion? And why is that not uh, working? I don't think it's working because <laughs> nobody can identify with what Perry is wearing. No. Unless you're a 1980s workout video. See, now I'm in England. You're in America. Have you ever seen anybody dressed like that? Well, with the caveat, I am not in America. I am in New York City. I beg your pardon. And I'm not in New York City. I am in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is the birthplace of the hipster. Uh -huh. And we have some very interesting outfits. Flamboyant? Even with, even with the haute couture on display in New York City, I've never seen anybody walking... And this is the city that invented the no-pants subway ride. I've never seen anybody <laughs> walking around dressed like Nicola Bryant in this story. If you do, take a snap discreetly. <laughs> I'll put it on the Twitter. Yeah. The cyber planet got the... So that's the 10th planet. Yes. That's a bad line. The opportunity to watch a Time Lord squirm. Yeah. That's bad dialogue. No notice of you just trying to unnerve you. Your planet survived the attack. Oh, here we go. <laughs> That's almost now. Yeah. 
<laughs> You're right, that's good. Perry's always hysterical, isn't she? <laughs> Calm well, down, love. a time when she is not ramped up. I mean, she has to match Colin Baker's energy. But it's to a point where, don't throw things at me, I actually find it refreshing when Mel comes along in those first couple of stories because she's just happy to be there. I like Mel because she's doing the Broadway actress projecting her voice. She's doing Gwen Verdon. Mm -hmm. But you're going to laugh at this. If you look at the way that Perry screeches and you listen to Dodo, I prefer Dodo to Perry. I think Jackie Lane was very good at finding that upbeat note, whereas yes. whatever they're making, they're making <laughs> Nicola Bryan play out of character, which is so over the top. She doesn't quite pitch her performance in the right direction. I agree with you. In fact, w watching the gunfighters this week, um, Jackie Lane was making me laugh a lot in that, especially the bits where she's holding Doc Holliday hostage. Those scenes were great. That's great. But when Nicola Bryan is playing herself and not putting on that fake American accent and she's on the Big Finish audios, that's, mm. that's what she should have been doing all along. I would imagine if they were doing like a fun, silly comedy musical western in season 22. Oh no, it would be an absolute bloodbath, wouldn't it? Oh, I can't imagine. This is actually a good miniature that looks pretty realistic. But what's going on here? So this... Fellas. The novelization explains exactly what is going on here. The Cryons are poisoning the Cyberman supply, but they never explain it on oh, TV. The right. I just thought he'd woken up and was a bit disoriented. See, the novelization groups all the scenes together by chapter, mm -hmm. and it makes Griffiths the ID character for the book. The book opens from his point of view, and he's lying in bed, and his mother is making him breakfast. The book is, and it cuts out all the padding. So yeah. The book is delightful. And the book actually gives Griffiths a more satisfactory exit than he's going to get here. Does, oh, does he leave in the book then? Does he, he survives? He doesn't survive, but instead of quickly cutting away from his brutally murdered corpse, Eric Sayward eulogizes him. You know, it's not too many people who can die on another planet with $2 million of uncut diamonds in their pocket. Griffiths had died in style. That right. is a wonderful yeah, eulogy, yeah, yeah. and the That's TV terrific. series doesn't even try. Uh-huh. They're really going for the um, effect that the Cybermen are very strong. They, Colin Baker tried very hard to convince them that his um, shoulders were being crushed by those uh, padded gloves. Are you making a reference to Tom Baker's neck massage in <laughs> Revenge of the Cybermen? <laughs> yeah, it looks quite nice, actually. I'll have to book one in. Oh, look, here's two guys arguing again. Oh, yeah. But this is the first time this has happened, isn't it? Where someone's gone inside a cyber suit. That's what happened in, ah, um, oh, good grief, The Timeless Children in Jodie Whittaker's time. Yes. Now that jumpsuit, oh, look at that blue belt with the uh, enormous metal studs. Yeah. This is not the way people dress. Oh, and they, they, if they had just had her wear regular street clothes and had Colin Baker in black, the season gets 10% better. Watch this. Watch as they come out of here. This is all, like, this tombstone look great, but the shooting of it is quite good. It's an inventive camera angle, yes. But these tombs, they just look like terrible 80s, like, front doors. Oh, yes, the sliding patio doors from your, from your uh, Home Depot catalogue. 
Oh no, you see, and he compounds it by saying, I'd forgotten how big they are. So the doctor's like, oh, they look exact. Maybe like behind, the, you know where they're looking now where we don't see? Maybe that's where the tombs from Tomb of the Cybermen are. And Lytton just says, I understand why they call them tombs. <laughs> what does that mean? Like... <laughs> and I say we're just God dozing God. off at his typewriter. Yeah. I can't wait to hear what you think of the cryons. Uh... <laughs> oh, see, I just find these scenes interminable. I know I'm supposed to be um, making a case for this story, but those scenes, I cannot. Again, it was all padding. None of that was scripted. They had to put it in to pad out the running time. And again, none of that is in the novelization at all. So you really think he did like a, a proper repair job on the novelization? Yes. And also, he restores the cryons to what they were supposed to be, which is uh, the Native Americans, um, before they got massacred by the uh, settlers. I did not know that. In fact, the novelization is dedicated to the indigenous people of America. Because the cryons are meant to be the noble civilization that got betrayed and destroyed by a conquering power. Oh, oh my word, another decapitation. Oh! So they, they've got this weird obsession with gunk as well, haven't they, during this era? Look at him, he's covered in, like, vomit. I would hate to see Eric Sayward's refrigerator. Ew. But it's all just a bit brutal and, like, charmless, isn't it, now? See, I was listening to you and Jack talk about the caves of Androzani, and you were talking about how it's a brutal bloodbath of a story. Mm. And I wanted to sort of stop the tape, travel back in time, and join you on the recording, because I can defend all the deaths and all the unpleasantness of Androzani, because every one of those characters has a clear personality and charisma. Absolutely. I, I would not disagree with that. But in this story... I mean, I like Payne, and I like Griffiths, and I like Terry Malloy, but none of the characters have the same inner life, because you have Eric Sayward writing instead of Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes, like, kills those people off. Um, it's, it's like, it's justified as an end to their character arcs that they've had in that story. It's for a reason. You've got Morgus and Sharish Jack meeting, because that's what the whole story's been building to, them meeting and killing each other. Eric Wolf just can't think of a better way to end this story, so he just murders everybody. As soon as their plot utility is over. Yeah. And he did the same thing in Resurrection of the Daleks. Um, he's almost as bad in Revelation, if I'm honest. Like, there's only a few people that make it out of that alive. Although, at least in Revelation, you have some interesting characters like Kala and oh, Orsini. They have some God. interesting things going on. And I shall control the food supply for the whole galaxy. And Terry Malloy is terrific as Davros. Mm. That's probably the second best Davros performance in the classic series. Oh, do you know, I think that's... I'm going to be controversial. That might be my favourite. I'm always going to be a Michael Wisher guy. Because uh, Genesis is, is just so, so good. But that is a... Excellent choice for second place. Jason, I feel like you're completely dismissing David Goodison here. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I am. Very perceptive, old chum. Thank you. 
Now, this is real. This, this is this should be a great scene. Brian Griffith, Griffith's career crook, small timer. He's now being offered millions of dollars in diamonds. The crimes are being nice to him. He's being given a job to do. He deserves a happy ending. He is now our audience ID figure. The story is about his journey of redemption. That should end well. But it doesn't. It's Eric say we're breaking a contract with the audience. Oh, I love get away with that if you're a good writer, but I think these scenes work between the doctor and the injured cryon here because he actually gets to to underplay it a little bit and he's quite charming here and he's lovely with it. And he doesn't get to do it very often in this story. Now, is this the cryon who is Sigmund Freud's granddaughter, or is that one of the other cryons? <laughs> Okay, you win the obscure trivia round this time, my friend. And whichever one that is is also married to David Morrissey, who was the next doctor. That's my other bit of random uh, TV trivia for you. One of them is Sarah Green, who was uh, one of the presenters of Ghostwatch. I know that. But that's as obscure as I... I I was shocked when I was watching Kinder yesterday. Did you know that... um, is it Jason, the guy who plays Sherlock in, uh, he's one of the children in Kinder. Johnny Lee Miller, yes, yes. Unbelievable, I had no idea. See, that was filmed in Brooklyn. Elementary did an episode right in my neighborhood. Really? And then Paul Cornell actually came to the States and wrote one episode of Elementary. Did you get to meet him? Uh, No. Oh, here we go. Right. Uh, Now, I think it's hit and miss with the mask work in the 80s. And this is a miss. The whole costume requires a rethink. But Eric Sayward wrote the cryons as males. Because for Eric Sayward, the worst thing you could do is write a strong female. I think it was Matt Robinson who actually recast them as female characters. Because otherwise, with Eric Sayward, it was going to be... An all-male um, cast. All, all male. There would not be a single woman in the story outside of Perry. I mean, I'm assuming you've read uh, Mission to Magnus that was due out in the next series, Planet of the Women. Oh, with did I hate that book. Anzor, the oh. Time Lord bully, who was like, you women need to be put in your place. And he does. Oh, it's just terrible. So Wikipedia informs me that Esther Freud is the great-granddaughter of Sigmund Freud. That it says she plays an alien in Attack of the Cybermen, but doesn't say which one. <laughs> okay. She's married to David Morrissey, and uh, she's now a novelist. Well, at least this is on her CV. See, look, here we go. So we've got four blokes together again now. They're going to bring together uh, Lytton and Griffiths and Stratton and Bates. So you could have just had the four from the beginning go on this journey. When you were defending the twin dilemma on the Nymon podcast, you made the point that defending Hugo is Lang a strong word. Could have been made a regular. Who would Hugo Lang have been in this story? Who would he replace? Mm. That is a good question. I, I do think he would have been a, a, a terrific regular, and he would have been able to like punch a Colin Baker's bubble more than Nicola Bryant did, and they would have been quite a nice double act. Um, and it would have <clears throat> dissipated some of the toxicity that's in season 22. Who would he have been in this story? 
this is a nice shot where she has the hands on his face. Yeah, and she's giving like a a committed performance. I think some of the cryons are, you know, stock alien. Is that collar an anatomical feature or is that uh, just part of their wardrobe? It is an anatomical feature. That is incredible. It's very similar to the Vervoid costume from the following season, minus oh, yeah. the uh, other anatomical feature. The cape she's wearing. I love it in the minute. I, whenever Colin Baker rails at the Time Lords, I don't want to punch the air. Because <laughs> they kind of were insufferable at this point. I, I just can't handle Gallifrey stories. Do you think she could see at all in that mask? I don't think so. That was the other problem Pennant Roberts had in Warriors of the Deep. None of the actors could see out of the costume, so they had to walk really, really slow lest they fall over on camera. It's just so weird because, like, she's like covered in colored cling film and then they've stuck like stones all over it it's i refuse to believe any creature would evolve like this she's supposed to be an ice creature so what does she need rocks for <laughs> it's always a bit dangerous as well when you can see the face through the mask uh yes but that was a pitfall of the classic series, wasn't it? Uh, do you know, I had never noticed before at the end of episode one of City of Death that you could see the actor's nose through the mask. And when I That's showed right. my other half, he destroyed the illusion of that glorious cliffhanger. He's like, the nose, the nose. <sighs> it's like the hand of Sutek in Pyramids of Mars. Oh, the chair feature. Yeah. Yes, he stands up and the, the hand disappears behind the cushion. You don't want to know what that hand does, honestly. I mean, I don't mind when the seams are showing because it makes you realize how little faith the BBC had in this long-running series and how little money they gave it. Yeah. And the actors are really trying their best to sell the illusion. Oh, so completely. And I, I think... find it easy to suspend disbelief. I was asked the other day what I watch Classic Who for now. It's not really the effects. Like, it, it, there's enough time between Classic Who and now for it all to kind of look a bit ropey. Um, I kind of go into it for the performance now and the writing more than anything. Yeah, even a story like Underwater Menace, which was... All hail the Underwater Ooh. Menace. Look at that arm. Mm. But there's such delight in watching the actors, especially Patrick Troughton, and listening to the dialogue. I just enjoy the performances and the wit. Just before we uh, came onto this, uh, Jason showed me a wonderful clip of Joseph First, who was interviewed many, many years after the Underwater Menace, uh, looking to camera in an intro, going, You thought I drowned, Doctor? <laughs> I shall return, and nothing in the world will stop me now. Amazing. Thanks to the loose cannon guys for getting right. Joseph first to do an in-character epilogue to the story <laughs> right before he passed away. In my head canon, Zarov survives that story. Yeah, absolutely. Just to justify that bit of uh, Joseph first. Uh, it's very unclear in the in the telesnap. So you, I think you see him go under the water, don't you? But that's it. You see him pull himself 
under the water in order to drown himself. <laughs> but in the novelization, he has a different end, and it's very clear that he's been killed. Mm. Nigel Robinson went back 40 years later and fixed the, I think it's 30 years later, and went back and fixed the ending. I, that novelization I do remember because I remember a scene where Jamie slaps Polly and says, yeah, that shut her up. And I can, to, to this day, I can remember as a child being horrified reading that. That is not on TV, thankfully. Yeah. All right, so and the PBS Part 3 cliffhanger is coming up at some point in this scene, but I forget which moment it is. So they wouldn't look for a moment in the action that was appropriate. They would just time 22 minutes in and, and stop it, yeah? It almost works with Attack of the Sidemen, but all the other stories were written as 45-minute jobs, so there was no natural cliffhanger halfway through. Right. So part one of the two doctors is they're walking down the hallway, and the doctor says, the work here threatened nobody. And the computer voice goes, it threatened the Time Lords. And that's the cliffhanger moment. Beow. That works. Yeah. That works by accident. But part five of the two doctors ends with the doctor taking a sip from a fountain in Seville and then walking away. That wow. doesn't work. No. What was the worst then? What was it like? The, yeah. Part one of Vengeance on Varos. Who's this coming to welcome us? And part three of the two doctors. Can you show us to this hacienda? Yes, it is this way. Wow. <laughs> and as we mentioned, the the master going down the musical stairs in um, The Five Doctors. And Sarah Jane Smith rolling down the gentle Welsh slope for uh, the part one cliffhanger. Hang on a minute. <laughs> We've completely uh, lost track of Attack of Poor Eric Sayward here. But do you know what? I think, I think that's very telling. In the, the first episode, we were more invested in the action than we are in the second. It's just so the cryons just are not sold as an interesting race, and you're meant to sympathize for them, and it just doesn't work. And it's not the actress's fault. I can't figure out why it doesn't work. I think there's supposed to be a contrast with the Cybermen, but the Cybermen aren't very interesting either. So you've got two pretty dreary alien races vying for our attention here. We've bumped off rather... the most interesting characters. I'd rather have the Diamond Heist. I'd rather have yeah. more of uh, Terry Malloy bantering with the other guy. We could have had, like, Colin Baker in 1980's Ocean's Eleven, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like Time Heist. We could yeah. have had a 1980's version of Time Heist. <laughs> We're writing a far better season 22 than what we got. Well, we've had 35 years of 2020 hindsight. That's true. So she dies as well. Oh, that's right. She sacrificed herself. She puts the the lance. So that's quite well set up because the lance was set up in episode one. But you... was, uh, I think it was Chekhov who said, if you show a sonic lance in act one, it must be used in act three. <laughs> Cheeky. <laughs> oh, here he goes. Eric Sword looked at this and went, right, this is the blueprint for season 23. The docs are railing at the Time Lords. This is good. I mean, Colin Baker just is given bad dialogue, but he savors it and he mm. really pitches it in a good way. I don't think there's one point where he's not committed to the role. It, the material lets him down, is the trouble. Uh, when I come back and do Time Lash, and I'll need to be very, very drunk for that, fair warning. The only two moments in all of Time Lash that work 
Aron Colin Baker acting against the script. Let's see. Is it? I love the bit where he's uh, dancing about with Herbert in the cabin in Scotland. Is that one of them? Yes, where Herbert is trying his best, so the doctor just sidesteps him. That is great. And the other one, the waves of time wash us all clean. That's beautiful. That's actually that a good line of dialogue. I actually used that with my kid last year, forgetting that it came from Time Lash. But then I watched Time Lash a week later. <laughs> oh, so that's where I got it from. Wait, I'm quoning Time Lash with my kid? i got to turn on my parenting license. Yeah, I see. This is so, you. You've abused your childhood, and this is the result. And I'll, I'll save the other moment for when we do the Time Lash recording okay. so your audience has a reason to come back and listen to my dreary Sith wine voice. Oh, sh nonsense. I don't listen to him, everybody. Um, I sound like a low testosterone Mickey Mouse, but I will have interesting things to say about Time Lash uh, when, we, when we come back for that one. I'll make a promise to you. I will have two or three drinks before we start Time Lash. So I'm already a little bit gone by the time we start. I feel like that's the only way to truly get through it. You need a serious amount of anesthetic to get through that story. So... There's a sequence here now where they climb a ladder for what feels like the length of a Bible. And here they go. It's How like, right, we've, we've, ladder? we've built this ladder, we've set this camera up, we're going to bloody well shoot this, and you're going to watch it. We built this prop, we built this set, it took 80% of our budget, <laughs> we're not going to spend the next 20 minutes here. Although, again, the lights are down. I am quite... I mean, I would still say the second episode is rather well-directed. Yeah, this handheld camera masks the fact that the ladder is wobbly. Mm. Shane, I didn't think about that in the power crawl. Ooh, that was good. That was that was a good shock. And that's... You don't get a lot of that, the jump scare in the Eric Sayward era. His idea of menace was the garm slowly walking out of a brightly lit uh, hallway. Do you know what I... Ah, oh, so we were going to have a, a really lame Cyberman death here. Like, I think I think his arm catches fire or something and he starts waving about. It's... Yes. Oh, oh, my arm, my arm. <laughs> He's trying to like, bat it out with the gun. Yeah, put a loaded power pack near the flame. That'll help The sparks on the studio floor look pretty cool. Mm. Oh, I'm sure that was by accident. And now the noble self-sacrifice of a tertiary character. Wouldn't be Doctor Who without it. No. It, it kind of works. So I remember there's a there's a lovely shot where he kind of pulls out from her in the room on her own, kind of hugging herself. So in the moment, it kind of works, even if it is a dreadful cliche. Mm. The she is not letting that mask get in the way of her performance, yeah. is she? I, she is going for it. It works, it works. Mm. Can you hear that music like that? <laughs> in the background. Imagine if Murray Gold were to score this thing. Oh, it would be like orchestral mat. No, choral mat, wouldn't it? It'd be like um. You would have the whole cry on chorus. Oh. 
Oh no, they're all going a bit mad with their hands. Hand acting. Mm, see, that might be a good cliffhanger things. moment there. Like the doctor. Oh no, here we go. Colin Baker had good physicality. That was a nice run. This scene is too much. I remember loving it as a kid. I mean, this is a show where people die horribly, but this... This this is torture. Like, this torture what is the for... justification for it, it? It's that Cyberman face behind as well. It's just, like, totally expressionless. Oh, Ugh. look. Now, that's bad enough. But then we cut to, back to him, and there is blood smeared everywhere as he's kind of, like, writhed around on the floor. There's just no poetry to it. No, I would suggest that is post-watershed. Look <laughs> there, look, that's revolting. There's nothing whimsical or entertaining about that. It's just too much. Imagine Linda Barron coming in now with her ballad. You know, like... <laughs> it's curtains for little. <laughs> they done knock you down. <laughs> I mean, I suppose she did sing over deaths in the gunfires, didn't she? So. But those were whimsical. Yeah. Uh, again, with Caves of Androzani, every character dies for a specific reason in an operatic way. Yeah. What happens to Lytton is just nasty. Oh, it's, and, then, and then he gets, like, hollowed out. His stomach's hollowed out, and he's converted into a Cyberman, and, oh, it's just vile. But the... <sighs> Script never gives us a reason to root for him. No. And the whole well, point of the episode I, is the doctors have misjudged him. I don't think the doctor misjudged him. I think I think it thinks it's given you a reason to to, to kind of sympathise with him, but it he fails. He's still utterly. using the other guys as disposable body. He's still responsible for the deaths of those three other guys. See, that's so sweet. So in trying to save the cryos, he's still committing murder. Oh, that's an interesting little miniature. Interesting, yes, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I say one thing I do like about the hand crushing and the converting is the Cybermen do come across as a dangerous force, you know, like a deadly force. I don't think that's always the case. These Cybermen are going to hurt you, you know? Like the new series has struggled to make the Cybermen interesting. They're, just, they're just very stompy, aren't they? Are you trying to say you weren't terrified by those flying uh, cyber heads? Honestly, Jason. Well, I was terrified in a different way. <laughs> He's taking the piss out of them. Oh, please. And then I just opened the door. <laughs> oh, there he is. Old sicky side, man. Yes, yeah, covered in green gunge. Does he? What does he do? Like open the face? I can't remember now. It's if you nice. had seen a human skull under there, it would have been a nice creepy moment. Yeah, but it's all just mechanics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's the robot. Except for the chin, it's a disembodied chin. Lovely. But it is kind of leaning into the body horror of the Cybermen, isn't it? Which the show didn't do enough. So I say it does it too much here, but. 
it was always like a like a, a conceptual threat rather than a, a literal one. But here, maybe this shows that it should never have been a literal like threat. Well, the original Tenth Planet Cybermen were not out to conquer or destroy. They were there to survive. They were just looking for people to refresh their race. Later on, the Cybermen became these generic, all-conquering Dalek-type monsters. And they were those Tenth Planet Cybermen. Those sock faces with the eyes are haunting. And then one of them turns out to be Bill Potts. That is just a horrifying yeah. <laughs> moment. That was good stuff. That was really good story. But here's more torture. Yeah, this is low. It's like watching your grandmother being like tackled and and murdered. I mean, this is really gross. They 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 linger on this poor woman dying for ages. And they had her steaming up. Ugh. I mean, I'm glad they didn't go for the guns. I couldn't have handled that. This is Eric say we're torturing and killing a woman on camera. This is a snuff film. Yeah. And like you know, this is the sort of stuff I imagine goes on with the Cybermen. I just don't want to see it, you know? Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here's our payoff. These guys are going to get their happy ending. They're going to have their oh, time machine. they're going to make it off and have a three-man orgy. It's going to be lovely. Cocktails on the bridge. Oh, oh. maybe not. Oh, two out of three will make it. Yeah. Oh, but this is a good uh -oh. shot moment as well, though. Right, I do like... Brian Glover is dead. If he dies off camera, there's not even a uh, lingering shot of his smoldering corpse. At least in the novelization, Eric Sayward says goodbye, there's a nice eulogy. And now we cut from his meaningless death to Morris Colborn looking sick on camera. So who's our Who's's... audience identification figure now? Uh, me hitting stop button eight minutes early and going to do something else. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what is? Who are we supposed to root for? What is I have the no point? Idea. I, I think we're supposed death? to care about Listen here, because he's the one in danger. But uh, the script has not earned my respect for him. In Caves of Androzani, the Doctor is a wild card. His mere presence in the story changes the motivations of all the other characters, mm -hmm. and they all do what they do because they mistake the Doctor for somebody else. And he is noble and upright, and he says, "I'm going to save Perry." The whole thing is him saving Perry as everyone else is killing themselves around him. And the only character that he has sympathy for, that's a cool shot, the only character Peter Davison has sympathy for in Caves of Androzani is the dead Magma Beast. But he is a towering upright beacon. He is our hero. Yeah. There's nothing like that in Attack of the Cybermen. The early stuff is fun. It is well-paced. It is well-directed. But it is nastiness for nastiness's sake. Yeah, I, I would say you're now, right. The only this... surviving character is this cryon, and she's saying to the doctor, get lost. <laughs> the only surviving character is get lost. We don't need you here. Go away. You are right. that This has become like a, a, a snuff movie now. It's just nastiness, isn't it? And with a couple of drafts, it could have been so much better because mm. the directing is there, the acting is there. Yeah. I ne You're right. I never would have gone to Telos. Where is he like? You would have stayed on Earth and just had it in like a time heist type episode? Yeah, I would have abandoned all the continuity because I just think that's alienating. I would have toned down the nastiness. 
but then you know i wouldn't have called it attack of the cybermen because i doubt i would have featured them yeah you know i, I would have completely rewritten this from the ground up but i will say again it this is pacey it is exciting it is well directed it's mostly very well acted like there, there are things to enjoy about attack of the cybermen but what is the cybermen's point they want to use Haley's comet to destroy oh, earth what are they doing knows. on telos is it a survival story is it a revenge story if Haley's comet plot falls by the wayside if you thought resurrection of the daleks was a spaghetti junction of plots this is just as confusing yeah i have no idea I'm just beginning to find out about you. Just because the bad guy takes a mercenary contract with the good guys doesn't make him a good guy. Do you know, you know what? what I like better than this? Go on. Seeds of Doom. Scorby in the Seeds of Doom is a mercenary. He's a nasty character. He teams up with the Doctor unsentimentally in parts 5 and part 6. They have an uneasy alliance. That is good stuff. Well, what this reminds me of is Revenge of the Cybermen with Kelman. Well, they try and pull off the same thing. It's like, oh, yeah, he was a good guy all along. And he does the most appalling things throughout that story. <laughs> he massacred an entire starship full of his co-workers and friends. Yeah. And, and it's like, oh, no, he was he was the good guy. Like, really? Okay. Oh, gosh, here we go. This is the scene that everyone has an issue with. Colin Baker. Um, oh, I mean, look. Ooh, green green blood being spewing out. It's even on the camera. camera. Yeah. Oh my word. They're having a little I've been shot dance. This is not very well choreographed, is it? Like I mean what? for me, a twelve year old boy in Nassau County, Long Island, New York, this was exciting to watch, but looking at it now, like this is awful. Yeah. How did I enjoy this when I was twelve years old? Because we're all, you know, we're all little devils at twelve. We I think little children have an inherent love of violence. Yeah. And watching stuff that we probably shouldn't, you know? And there is a lot of that in this. I let my kid read The Hunger Games when she was in fourth grade, so I guess I'm uh, huh? equally guilty. You're not immune, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, and then the last hardest scene, they really try and push it, don't they? Oh, I've never underestimated anyone as much as I did Kelman. Sorry, I mean Lytton. Honestly. There's nobody left alive, and no. now it's all going to blow up anyway. Yeah, so, like, this is where we were heading all along anyway, the whole thing. Did you love the way his hand gestures there? Like, get away, get away. That was not a very exciting hand gesture. But that's a fair explosion. That's a pretty good model tabletop explosion. Cuts to the TARDIS. It did, didn't go very well, he said. <laughs> no, it didn't. Everyone's That's dead, Doctor. the title of my ratings guide review. <laughs> but, like, the thing is, you think the... How does Warriors Deep end? Um, it should have been it another have been way. Another way. So we're telling the same story. I love Warriors of the Deep, and I realize that I shouldn't. But I, I can see that and enjoy it without nitpicking it, the way that I have to nitpick this story. Then bring on that commentary. This is a story that should have worked when I was 12 years old. It did work. There are parts of it now that I appreciate, but this is not a story that I'm going to put on for enjoyment. This is not comfort viewing. No. 
And it's a, it's a very safe approach as well, isn't it? The new Doctor's in. Nobody's sure of him. Let's bring in the side. You know, we'll wheel out the Cybermen. So everyone, you know, will be convinced that he's a nice heroic Doctor. There's a lot of that in season 22 as well, isn't it? I, I feel like there's not a lot of faith in Colin Baker. So they wheel out all the old favourites. And he's good. He has he good really physical good. presence. He yeah. has good line meetings. But the script and the costume just sort of drown him out. I, I he, took, he, he took the he took the he took the he took the blame. It was all JNT and Eric Sayward's fault, and Colin Baker's the one who got the axe. Yeah, I, I really feel like in this era, you've got uh, Colin Baker and sorry, not Colin Baker, JNT and Eric Sayward not communicating well, and the resulting conflict is there on the screen. Is it's yeah, it's not fun to watch. Man, this is me saying it's not fun to watch, and I'm supposed to be defending this. Uh, you're not a very good trial counsel, there, Chief. No, I know. I think I have failed dismally there. But I will uh, once again. I am going to put my hand up and say I will go back and rewatch Attack of the Cybermen. I will uh, enjoy its merits. I just, I, I think a lot of the trouble is in episode two. I think on its own, episode one is quite strong. The bank heist sequence, the four crooks, that is good stuff. Colin Baker with his little uh, tiny whimy detector stalking through the streets of London is good stuff. There was no point for the sequence in Totter's yard. There's no, no payoff to the TARDIS changing shape and becoming an organ. No. But I, I think I think the point is that's the what they think the fans want. They want Totter's yard. They want that massive scene in the TARDIS that's packed full of continuity. They want to go back to Telos. They want the Cybermen. When actually what they probably should have been doing was something completely original. And the new series went back to Totter's Yard as well. Mm. But at least that was in service of a slightly more coherent story. Yeah, and I think the sort of the anniversary that they were celebrating there, you know, it was, it was absolutely uh, worth doing at that point. Mm. Uh, Jason, thank you very much for that commentary. That was fantastic. Um, I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to entice you back for another. Um, I'd actually quite like to put you on the spot and ask you what story you'd like to do next. I have four stories that I want to talk about. I don't know if I'm pushing it by having four different uh, <coughs> No, no, no. Go for it. So I recently got through the War Machines on my marathon in late okay. December. That mm-hmm. was about three weeks ago now, which feels like years in COVID time. Warrior, The War Machines bored me to tears when I was 11 years old. I fell asleep through it twice. Watching it now, it is astoundingly good. And that is a story that could use a vigorous defense. Okay. And I'm, I'm on the fence with that one, so that could be quite interesting. I will walk you through it, and I will make you a fan. Well, you've worked. It worked here. So you did the reverse effect here. I made. I, I made <laughs> you an opponent of, of attack of the yeah. <laughs> Okay, number two. Creature from the pit. Oh please! Wonderful story. Wonderful acting performances. Yeah. The first on-camera love scene between a doctor and his companion. Yeah. Oh god, sorry. We're talking about different scenes. Go on. The, the Doctor and Ramana have an actual Thomas Crown affair, chess game style love scene in part four that is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Oh, I that I didn't that. realize it was a love scene until I was well into my 40s. But 
once you see it the way that I see it, you will never look at that scene another way. Oh, I look forward to that. It makes the story incredible. <clears throat> it was Tom Baker and Lala Ward on day one, before they fell in love, before they got married, before they got divorced and never spoke to each other again. The chemistry they had. Oh, it's extraordinary. Oh, it's it's. it's and that I think that's a, a severely underrated story as well. So that, that would underrated. be a fantastic one. Okay, number three. Uh, Time Lash, which oh, you've already yes. invited me back for, mm -hmm. which I'm going to do against my better judgment. I may just spend uh, an hour and a half talking like Vina. <clears throat> so just, just in a very vacant way. I will spend an hour <laughs> and a half like the android. <laughs> or maybe I'll spend the whole time talking like Paul Darrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that Again, one. Again, when you when you have a script that bad, you have to do something. Mm. Paul Darrow is at least trying. Nobody else is trying. Do you know what's one of the funniest moments in Doctor Who is that terrific moment where he sells out Brunner, and he's like, "Oh yeah, Brunner's the one." And he's like, "No, Tekka, don't!" Like, and Paul Darrow just completely, <laughs> and he's murdered in front of him. I think it's that's time good. for another election. Oh, it's terrific. Anyway, uh, and the fourth one? Uh, we just talked about it. I want to come back and do a defense and an appreciation of Warriors of the Deep. Oh, my. I spent about 30% of this podcast criticizing Pennant Roberts. I am going to retract that, and I'm going to point out the moments in Warriors where Pennant Roberts is actually doing a good job in spite of I the acting and the Merca problem. defy you to give a positive appraisal of Pennant Roberts' direction of Warriors of the Deep. I think that's potentially the worst directed story of Classic Who. You will have to invite me back and brave 90 more minutes of my low testosterone Mickey Mouse voice <laughs> and my trampling over your insights. And if you're willing to do that, I will come back and explain why Warriors of the Deep actually worked. It would be an absolute pleasure. But for now, thank you very much. Um, again, where can people find you? Just very quickly again. I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, and you can find my semi-defunct blog with eight years worth of differing blog posts at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, at WordPress.com. Again, so fantastic. I devoured them across about two days. Some terrific writing. Jason, thank you very much. Thank you, Joe, for having me on.